so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the ERLC Podcast. Today we'll feature a panel about pop culture. Because I thought so much of the what was missing was um, emotional empathizing with people. Why this captures the hearts and minds of so many people. Why this is so hurtful to people. I decided instead of just writing a blog post, I wanted to write a song because music can connect with your emotions in a unique way. And I wanted to express this is how I feel and the way that I felt because of my experiences, because the experiences of every black man that I know, is that I've been in situations eerily similar to that. That if I would have responded just a little bit differently, could have went exactly that way. And that hurts. Media and pop culture play a large role in how racial issues in our country are portrayed. At the Leadership Summit, several guests, including Trip Lee, Jason Cook, Robbie C., and David Prince, gave their insight on how everything from hip-hop to sports contribute to racial reconciliation. Let's join the conversation now. Well, hey, it's a, uh, a joy to be with you guys tonight. My name is Mike Cosper, and uh, it's my responsibility, my privilege to sort of facilitate a conversation here uh, to continue this conversation and to, to bring in the topic of, of pop culture and racial reconciliation and to, to ask some questions from the folks here on the panel um, about what are, the, what, what, are the, what are the ways that pop culture is influencing this conversation and shaping this conversation and how does that particularly affect us as the church as we try to respond as well as we try to understand the, the culture that we're immersed in both in terms of responding to it and in being shaped by it. So to, to kind of kick things off in this uh, conversation, I want to I actually reference, I, I want to reference a movie that I think, uh, a scene from a movie that I actually think perfectly kind of encapsulates what, what the challenges are and what the questions are. And the film's a film called Crash. It was a movie that came out a few years ago. And it, it's a scene in which uh, two characters, Sandra, played by Sandra Bullock and Brendan Fraser, sort of white, upper-class folks, are walking down the street, uh, it's, it's, it's nighttime, they're out shopping, it's a busy street, and they pass two young African-American men. And as they pass, uh, Sandra Bullock kind of huddles up against her husband, and, uh, and the, the two young men notice this, and they get offended. The, 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 the men's names are Anthony and Peter. And Anthony is particularly offended by this, by her reaction, her fearful reaction to him. And he says, uh, he says to his friend, he says, look around. You couldn't find a whiter, safer, or better lit part of this city. But this white woman sees two black guys who look like UCLA students strolling down the sidewalk, and her reaction is blind fear. I mean, look at us. Are we dressed like gangbangers? Huh? No. Do we look threatening? No. 
fact, if anybody should be scared around here, it's us. We're the only two black faces surrounded by a sea of over-caffeinated white people <laughs> patrolled by the trigger-happy LAPD. So you tell me, why aren't we scared? And Peter, his friend, replies, because we have guns. And Anthony says, you could be right. And what happens next is these guys pull guns, chase these two down around a corner, and carjack them. Mm. So I think the filmmakers in the scene, they're asking some really important questions. Um, there's the matter of how young black men are seen by others, and the question as well is of, of how do they see themselves. And, and I think we can ask it in a sense, you know, what comes first? Or, or to put it a little differently, what role does pop culture, you know, whether it's movies, hip-hop, television shows, what role does pop culture play in shaping a dehumanizing culture of violence? Does it shape it? Does it merely respond to it? Does it sensationalize it? So I'm just going to throw that one wide to the panel and uh, see who'd like to kind of dive in and take a stab. And if, before you speak, uh, introduce yourself to the audience for me. Who'd like to take the first swing at that one? I'll take the first swing at it. First of all, I think that's a, it's a brilliant scene. Yeah. Um, even as you're retelling it, I'm kind of seeing it in my mind again. I think it really does provoke a lot of questions. I think pop culture, um, I think it does all the things you're saying. I think it... Uh, mirrors culture in lots of ways. And I, I think as a rapper, uh, hip-hop in a lot of ways mirrors the things that are happening in urban neighborhoods. So this is what rappers will say all the time to defend the misogyny, glorifying drug dealing and gangster life in their music. I'm just telling stories about what happens in my neighborhood. I think there's a sense in which that's happening. But I think there's also a sense in which hip-hop, for example, glorifies those things and teaches people to continue in those things. There are people who don't live in those neighborhoods who it continues to be glorified to. And people who do, who maybe if there was a rapper who approached things more responsibly, would for once see a different picture of a black man than all the drug dealers they look forward to in their yeah. neighborhood. But instead, the artist is irresponsible to continue to reinforce those stereotypes. Um, I think it does all of those things. And I think when there are opportunities for pop culture to give a different picture, even for people who are outside of the culture, so even for white brothers and sisters who say, if you look at pop culture, the main kind of pictures you see of black men are these kind of threatening pictures. Right. And I think uh, those of us who are artists uh, and who are in media have to think carefully about what those pictures are. So there are realities that they're mirror, but there's also the case that it's reinforced and glorified and furthered through the way that people approach their art. Right. Yeah, and, and when it comes to creating identity, I immediately think about the doll test in the Brown v. Board of Education case, right, where this young black girl looks at blackness not as being something beautiful or to be celebrated, but something that's inferior to the white doll, which is actually beautiful. Uh, then my mind goes to uh, Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail when you know, she sees a, a young black man or woman mistreated and he can see the wheels of inferiority beginning to turn into her, into her mind. And I think a lot of what I see in black culture is reactionary to that. It's, uh, we aren't really understanding and having a cultural identity. There's a, a bit of self-deprecation here going on. So there's a, a kind of an instinct to rail against that and to create something that's authentic, authentically black. Mm -hmm. Black manhood, blackness, 
Um, and me being a hip hop head, you know, being an 80s baby and growing up in the 90s, like hip hop was huge. And my images, had it not been for a godly man as my father, my images for manhood, I was seeing in movies, TV, hip hop. And with the advent of the music video, you know, staying up and watching Carson Daly on MTV. And this is what manhood is to me. Mm. So I think pop culture has been widely influential in, in developing uh, an idea of manhood. Yeah. And then inversely sort of in white culture, if, if those are the only images being portrayed, you know, if you grow up white middle class in the suburbs, I don't know if that was y'all's experience. Um, but if those are the images of, of African-American men, how do you see that shaping the way that that, that community is viewed from the outside? Well, no question. My name is Robbie, by the way. Great to, to be with you all. And, and uh, Mike and I had, had chatted a little bit about the Academy Awards this year. Uh, 20 actors and actresses nominated. All were white actors and actresses and really one of the best films of the year. Selma only had two nominations total. Uh, the people who vote on these things are, 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 are 90, I think it's like 96 or 97 percent uh, white. And what happens is I also read uh, recently that uh, a lot of the nominations in film uh, for actors and actresses uh, that are African American are typically in roles uh, that are uh, what we would think as historical roles as, as slaves or uh, you know, the, the movie The Help, uh, mm. The Help in the, in the Homes, and that roles that are authoritative, roles that are powerful, roles that, roles that are, uh, ha- have a positive influence typically don't get nominated. I don't think that's an accident. And so i got five kids in my house, and I want them uh, to see a movie like Selma because uh, that, that's a black man. I want them to know. Uh, mm. that, that, that's, a, that's a man I want them to respect and look up to. And uh, so that's, that's a huge impact on, on my family and on people who are seeing those films. Yeah. I think the, the other side of the opportunity that pop culture represents, and I'll throw this to you again, Tripp, is yeah. that pop culture also has the opportunity to, to provide some of those alternate uh, views and, and to provide a, a bridge into a culture. Um, and I think you did that, you know, really skillfully this year. You wrote a song um, as sort of as the world was reacting to Ferguson. You released a song called Could Have Been Me, um, the first verse, I'm sorry for how white I sound while I read this, but the first verse of the song <laughs> says, uh, don't nobody want to hear our pain. That's how I'm feeling when I'm flipping through them Twitter comments. All I feel is rain. They're telling me, get over it, it's old. That stuff don't exist no more. But that don't ring true when I look at these streets. So it's real when I feel like it could have been me. Um, I'd love for you to talk to us about writing that song because you know, it's one thing to feel that, yeah. but it's another thing to offer that to the world so what, what motivated you to share your heart that way, and, and what happened yeah. as you did it? You sounded good, by the way. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that, that first verse right there is the way that I felt as I, saw the, as I saw the reaction, particularly to what happened in New York with Eric Garner hmm. and some in, in Ferguson as well, which was, as I flipped through comments, anything that I would say, friends of mine would say, or other people would say, so much of it was, stop whining. Mm. That mm. kid was a thug. Why do you care so much? Why are you defending these violent criminals? He's a criminal. Stop worrying about this. And I just thought, there's no way that you can understand the way that this makes so many black people in America feel and yet still be that insensitive. So here, and a lot of people who call themselves Christians. And so I thought, I thought so many times about 
as an influencer, how could I speak into the situation in a helpful way? I didn't want to rush just to say stuff. Right. Plus, Thabiti was already saying everything <laughs> <laughs> better than I could have said. And so I thought, um, because I thought so much of the, what was missing was um, emotional empathizing with people. Why this captures the hearts and minds of so many people, why this is so hurtful to people, I decided instead of just writing a blog post, I wanted to write a song because music can connect with your emotions in a unique way. And I wanted to express this is how I feel and the way that I felt because of my experiences, because the experiences of every black man that I know, is that I've been in situations eerily similar to that. That if I would have responded just a little bit differently, could have went exactly that way. And that hurts. That pains me. And the fact that I keep hearing about young, unarmed black men getting gunned down by those who are supposed to serve and protect, that hurts. The fact that my father had to have conversations with me about how to interact with cops. The fact that I'm going to have to have those same conversations with my son, that hurts. And so what I wanted to do is write that song, not to make any grand theological statements. I just wanted to say, this hurts. And here's why. And please empathize with us, otherwise we can't love one another the way that we should. Did you see a difference in the reaction from, you know, black audiences and white audiences to the song? I did. Um, I, had some very, uh, I had some very rare, very racist reactions to it. Hmm. Actually, I think Dr. Moore retweeted the song, and then somebody said, get that ghetto monkey music out of here. <laughs> so there were some very rare, very racist responses hmm. like that. But the vast majority of them were very positive. Hmm. Uh, most black people responded by saying, yes. Thank you. This is how I feel, too. And a lot of white folks who responded. There were some who said, I still don't quite get it. Thank you for trying to speak to it. And I can appreciate that. I can appreciate that. I'm trying to understand and help me. But most of the white folks who responded said, I was struggling to understand why this has captured people's hearts so much. Thank you so much. That actually helped me. I actually understand it a little bit. I've got eight children. When that song came out, uh, we actually sat in the kitchen, played the song, Mm. And that was the bridge to the discussion about what was going on. And, uh, you know, uh, had tears in some of my children's eyes as they were thinking about that. And you're, you're positioning it, somebody they look up to and respect, as that could have been me, helped them sort of enter the situation with an empathy that they would not have had apart from your song. Wow, praise God. Well, that's exactly what I was hoping to do, was further the conversation. I knew it wouldn't be the be-all, end-all, but I just wanted to try to further that conversation. And testimonies like that are so encouraging. Uh, Mike, uh, when I was driving here, I was listening to uh, a dialogue, a lecture, not a lecture, but a, a panel discussion like this on the Civil War, theological implications of the Civil War. And you, uh, there was an image that Dr. Tom Nettles, the retired church history prophet, Southern Seminary uh, gave that shows you the, po- the powerful impact that pop culture can have for the good. Because he talked about growing up in a home where no racist conversation would have ever been tolerated. Uh, that wasn't what they did. And yet there, is a, there were certain boundaries. There were certain lines you didn't cross. Uh, and he said he never really thought about it. He just existed. And his favorite baseball player was Willie Mays. He collected cards, learned everything he could about Willie Mays. And he says he'll never forget when the controversy erupted that Willie Mays was trying to buy a house in San Francisco and the neighborhood wouldn't allow him in. He was nine years old and he said, why would somebody not want to live near Willie Mays? I want him to live in my house. Uh, Let him move here. Uh, And he said, 
So he wasn't thinking in terms of theology. He just saw somebody in pop culture that he valued and appreciated, and that got him to thinking, uh, because then people would say, why is your favorite baseball player a black man? Because he's good, really good. Have you ever seen him play? And, and so he started thinking, why do they talk like that? And he started self-examining, realizing through that lens that he had certain prejudices that he didn't even realize he had. They were dormant until this pop culture figure uh, became a, a focal point to draw that out. And he said it was right there. Then he started thinking about the theological implications as a child. And, and uh, I, I just thought, you know, I wasn't planning, re- listening to that for value here. Sure. But I thought that is really, really powerful. Mm-hmm. And, and these, these cultural things, these pop cultural images, uh, or pop, pop cultural realities, they're just reflexes. Right. Uh, why do we make things? Because there's a creator God. Some people acknowledge that, some people don't. Why do we sing? We cannot help but to sing. The world is amazing. And so we have all of these points of contacts with people who acknowledge God and who don't that we, we value these things in the world that God's made. And, and that is redeemable. And, and that certainly can be a window for us to say, no, there, there is a creator. <laughs> and that's why Willie May's life is valuable, but yours is too. Yeah. I, I just thought that was a powerful image. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like pop culture has the ability to kind of expose common threads in places we might not, you know, we might not be looking for them necessarily. Um, I, I'm going to stick with you for a minute, Dr. Prince. You, you've written a lot about race and sports, and particularly baseball. Um, why would you see, you know, why, why is baseball so important to this conversation about America and race? Well, baseball has historically been uniquely embedded in the ethos of American culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a time when the favorite sport in the African-American community was baseball. Willie Mays talks about the fact that his dad taught him to walk by sticking a baseball in front of him and rolling it and getting him to try to, try to, try to move toward it. His dad didn't even know there was another sport other than the baseball. So it's deeply embedded. So, so for instance, when, when Jackie Robinson ran across the line in 1947 on a baseball field, America has never been the same. That was, an, that, that was an action that could not be drawn back. It, its significance is, is way larger than we usually think. First of all, the, it started in 1902 with a 21-year-old baseball coach named Branch Rickey, who was the head baseball coach at Ohio Wesleyan University, had a black player, Charles Thomas. They wouldn't let him stay in the hotel room. Rickey talked him into letting him stay in his room. He found Charles Thomas crying, rubbing his arm, said, if I could wipe the black off, they could see I'm a man like any other man. 21-year-old baseball coach, Ohio Wesleyan University, says, I'm going to try to do something about this odious injustice of racism. And he did. He was a Christian. The the audacity of him saying that. And and then you come to the, he signs Jackie Robinson in 1945. Jackie Robinson plays for the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947. Uh, Henry Aaron puts it like this. He he grew up in South Alabama, Jim Crow, uh, oppressive in every way, and he would, Hank, Hank Aaron says he would look up and there would a plane be flying over, and he would say, I want to be an air, airline pilot. And his dad would say, ain't no colored man can be an airline pilot. He said, my dad didn't understand anything about politics and rallies and anything. 
But he said the day that Jackie Robinson put on a Brooklyn Dodgers baseball uniform, his dad looked at him and said, you can be anything you want to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, that had a power and an effect uh, that nothing else could have had. He understood baseball. That was a shared communal reality in America. Yeah. And when Jackie Robinson crossed that line, we literally have never been the same as a, a nation for the good. And, and even all of the backlash against that exposed things that needed to be exposed. Mm. Uh, and uh, so baseball has played a powerful role in uh, the issue of racial injustice in America. Hmm. Jason, you played sports, you played football at Old Miss, so I'd love for you to, to maybe share your experience of sort of um, the, the race dynamics that exist in, in sports. I mean, sometimes there's sort of a, a cliche, uh, a cliche, cliche comment that for young black men, oftentimes the way out of poverty is to become a rap star or mm-hmm. to become an athlete. And here we have a rap star and an athlete on the stage. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to us about what, what did you experience as a, as a young black man, talented athlete, uh, stepping into that world? Yeah, I think uh, it was, I reflect on my time at Ole Miss and I, I can't help but to think my experience as an SEC football player who happens to be black is very different than a student at the University of Mississippi who's black. So every Sunday, there's thousands of people in a stadium, and they're screaming your name, and um, if you do something wonderful, they are your greatest fans, and if you happen to miss a block, and they curl insults at you and cuss you out, um, and then the next week, they hate you, and then they love you again as soon as Saturday comes. Yeah. Whereas the, the, the average student proper goes to class every day, he could be making wonderful grades, But because he is a black student on a college campus, his college experience is very different from mine. So music and sports are great unifiers, and they are the closest that many of my Anglo friends come to seeing the the imago Dei or the humanity and the dignity in, um, in a person with dark skin. But that person on a football field is a novelty because they're entertaining, right? As opposed to um, seeing the, the humanity in um, a, a black man or a black woman, not simply because of the color of their skin, but because of who they are, and hailing them and praising them and seeing their dignity. So for me, my experience as a college football player, it was wonderful. People loved me. Mm-hmm. But if I were to step up on the doorstep of some of uh, the young ladies in the sororities of, in, in their father's house, I would go from being a beloved figure who we love on Saturdays to the guy who there's no way you can take my daughter out. And that reveals uh, where our hearts truly lie on, on race. And, and that played itself out in our locker rooms every single day. Yeah, that, that that's leads me to my next question. So contrast for us then your experience as an African-American on that team and the guy at the locker next to you mm-hmm. who, was, who was white mm-hmm. in that same environment. How does, how does that look different? Yeah, that guy actually uh, was at my wedding. Uh, <laughs> one of my best friends, white dude from Miami. Um, we were both fullbacks, and we both came from very different worlds. But um, as Christians, we all rally around the tragedy and the triumph of the cross. And it's the greatest unifier. It is the only thing, the gospel is the only thing that is enduring in reconciliation and truly endearing to one another. So me and this guy, we've got a common bond that's, that's football. But what happens the moment that 
the football ceases to be like the common bond between us. You know what I'm saying? And so in the locker room, you've got guys that come together every day for a common bond to play a game or to practice or to accomplish a goal. And then after practice or the game is over, you split and go your separate ways. But what is really beautiful is to see um, the, the black linebacker from the Delta in Mississippi, the poorest place in Mississippi, and then to see a quarterback from Highland Park in, in Dallas, Texas, come together and those guys become lifelong friends because they see the dignity and the humanity in one another and they truly love one another. That's beautiful. And that happens in the locker room as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Prince, I want to come back to this, the subject of baseball because it seems like there's been, there's been a culture shift around sort of the dynamics of race and, and sports today. Would you say that, it's, that baseball you know, plays the same role that it did as a unifier or have... Um, have have sort of the has there, has the culture sort of shifted where you know be, because of attachment to hip hop culture maybe there's more um, uh, African American athletes are more closely associated with basketball with football yeah. what have you seen you know in watching that what have you what have you noticed in, in those shifts yeah baseball certainly doesn't play the central role in American culture that it once did even though it's still embedded in a unique way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one thing you get with baseball is that uh, the athlete's exposed, and he's playing a team sport, but it's also very individualized at times. So personalities are, are, are large, writ large in baseball. Uh, you know, w- one thing that these guys were talking about, you know, Jackie Robinson, after his playing days, uh, w- would, would fight for certain things, and people would say, why are you causing problems? You can go anywhere you want. You can live anywhere you want. He said, yeah, but the guy in South Mississippi can't. Mm-hmm. He said, I'm a bad steward of the opportunity I've been given if I settle for what I can get. And, and it's also one of, the, the, one of the things that Robinson had against Willie Mays because he wasn't using his platform in that way, even though Henry Aaron did. But, but uh, baseball still has, sports in general, ha- has a powerful role in our culture. Uh, um, you know, you've got to think about sports rightly, though. It's a window, like all of these other cultural things, like music, and, and uh, I think sports are a, are, are a part of the performing arts. I think they're a, a competitive manifestation of the performing arts. In other words, I think sports are a part of that reflexive response to the world God that God has yeah. made. And, and certainly, um, you know, basketball has risen in popularity, and uh, 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 football is, uh, where I'm from, football is everything, <laughs> uh, for, 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 for good or bad, and somebody, I want to make sure I said roll tide on this panel, uh, somebody <laughs> said that I needed to say that, and I always like to say that, uh, uh, but, uh, you, you know, l- let me deal with a myth, though, sports do not build character, yeah. they don't, uh, war doesn't build character, uh, farming doesn't build character. But they are three metaphors that are attached to Christianity in the Bible because they expose character. And for the one who wants to form character in a cruciform way around the gospel, exposing the issues of character and reforming it in light of the gospel, it can be a valuable tool. And it's why warfare, uh, athletics, and farming are all key images for the Christian life. Uh, and, And... it, it, is, it is wrong-headed for us to say, well, we're Christians. We're not worried about trivial things like sports or mm. music or 
Well, they're not trivial things. They're reflexive responses to God. They are going to be there. Uh, The thing that we've got to do as Christians is to participate in them and enjoy them as Christians. I think the Christians who enjoy sports and other things generally uh, abstract it from the gospel as much as everybody else. Just sort of a sideline in their life. And I don't think anything can be a sideline. Taking every thought captive to obey Christ. Absolutely. Um, Let's talk music for a minute. I'm a church musician as well. How do we, you know, in, in, in our contemporary sort of situation with the church, um, contemporary music sort of drives the worship of the local church uh, far more than it did even a decade ago. Um, and yet the, the divide, it seems to me, as somebody who is a, who's, who's serving a congregation that's trying to... So, so a little background for me. I serve in a church that, uh, that literally sits on the railroad tracks that divide a city. Uh, one side of the railroad tracks is predominantly African-American. One side of the railroad tracks is predominantly white. And for the last, um, you know, up until about two years ago, for about seven years, we were, on, we were on the white side of the tracks, and we just crossed over to the other side of the tracks. And we're trying to, to take steps as a church to sort of grow into the, you know, a multicultural church. We want to we wanna reflect that diversity. Uh, and we're, we're not sure how to do it. Um, and one of, the, one of the issues that comes up again and again is sort of the question of music. And so, Robbie, I'll start with you. You know, there are, there are culture gaps between predominantly white churches and predominantly black churches. How do you see those fleshed out on Sunday mornings? And, and what are some examples of churches you've seen that have bridged that gap well? What does that look like? Well, that's a great question. I live in Houston, Texas, which is, uh, on paper, the most diverse city in the country. Which is, uh, it's, it's an amazing, multi-ethnic city. Um, there's a very large church in my city that theologically I have some wrestlings with. But when I walk in the door of that church, it's, it's extremely large. It looks like my city. Mm-hmm. And uh, that doesn't mean they've nailed everything uh, when it comes to the gospel. And I hope that, I hope that they make some <laughs> progress there. But when I walk in, I go, this looks like Houston. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the struggles my pastor and I have, when we walk in, in, into our church and look at our Folks, we, we are becoming more diverse, but it's, that's a struggle for us. Mm. This doesn't look exactly like my city. Even the suburbs of Houston are diverse, diverse and multi-ethnic. And, and so it's, I'd say that, that's a struggle. L- let me say this. When, when I, in just talking about music and the way that it affects culture, when I read the Psalms, the Psalms are full of musicians and songwriters who bear their souls in ways that I don't, always hear in what we would call, quote-unquote, Christian music, although I'm not sure what that term exactly means, but we don't always see that, and people of faith who are writing music. And uh, I think whether you're an African-American or whether you're a white kid uh, in the suburbs of Houston or you're a Chinese uh, brother or sister living in my city, uh, when we open the Psalms together and then when we sing the Psalms and when we uh, allow our souls to be bared before God, and, uh, and all the facets of our humanity are presented before all of his uh, divinity, uh, that's a powerful thing, and people can come together. So style has kind of become secondary uh, in that. And, and I think, and with Tripp sitting here, I think uh, hip-hop does that well. Uh, you know, we're, uh, we're, we're fans of, of Reach Records, all the all Lecrae. I took my kids, we sat on the front row of the Lecrae show, and, and that brother talks about a lot of stuff that's, uh, that's, that's real talk. 
And uh, my kids are not thinking in their mind. Uh, they, they have no idea that, you know, they're not thinking, well, this is a, a black man, and so I, I can't relate to that. They're going, man, he, he's a father. You hear how he talks about his wife? You hear how he talks about his struggle? He's confessing yes. his sin. Uh, that's, that's and, and so music becomes a powerful force, and I think hip-hop's at the forefront of that. I really yeah. do. Yeah, I'd love to hear from, from the others of y'all. What, what have you seen in terms of the sort of the culture of music around the church? How is that... How is it continuing to divide us, or, or how is it bringing us together? Yeah, the first, time, the first time, I remember distinctly the first time I went to a Southern Baptist church. Um, I, I was probably 14 years old, and during worship, you know, the ladies on the organ, you know, she's getting down with a straight face, and I remember looking, <laughs> like, looking, looking out, and, like, I'm, I'm standing there, and, you know, I, I grew up in, a, in the Word of Faith movement in the Pentecostal Charismatic Church, and so I just, it struck me, like these people worship for them is an organ and a frown, right? Wow. <laughs> well, that's good. And I began to ask myself, like, surely this isn't worship. Like, surely people don't actually worship like this. And then I go back to my church, and you got tambourines, and you got banners, and you got people running around church, and you've got a, a lot of other stuff. And over time, I began to compare and contrast those two worlds, mm-hmm. right? There is a real sense where people will almost live and die based on their preferences. However, a true mark of spiritual maturity is a person who's willing to set their preferences aside for the sake of the mission. So in worship, if we can come to the table in worship and and to truly be cross-cultural, and we can have different elements in a worship service so that at any given point that you may or may not feel really uncomfortable, we might be singing an old Luther hymn that... Uh, my dude from the West End don't know. Yeah. But when Ty Trippett crank up and he knows that song, then the, then the little lady who works in a coffee shop downtown or the guy with the comb over, he's not going to know Ty Trippett. But what we're doing is we're coming to the table and we're saying, I see the beauty in your culture and we want to celebrate that yeah. because we're in this thing together. And so, so yeah. So, so let me push back because here's, here's the challenge we've faced, which mm-hmm. is at times when we've tried to bridge... Um, first off, when you say organ and a frown, for a long time, people would have referred to the music at my church as electric guitars and frowns. Yeah. Um, as, as we've tried to sort, of, to sort of build that bridge, one of the things we've realized is that it's often, it's often worse, uh, rather than doing nothing, is it, let me phrase that as a question, is it worse, rather than do nothing to build the bridge, to do a bad version of someone else's you know, of something that someone else loves. Mm-hmm. Maybe y'all can speak to that. What, what have you been, your experience with that? Uh, I think, and you may have more direct answer to this, I think this is an impossible <laughs> battle. Yeah. Because no matter what you do, <laughs> there are going to be a lot of people who are angry about what's happening mm-hmm. music-wise. That's right. That's right. There's no way to do every style of music for every single person that is a member of your church where everybody feels like you scratched their itch. That's right. And so I think that's something that we have to, on some level, be okay with. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, it's good to fight for diversity in the way that we do our music. But we have to, as pastors and leaders, teach the people who become members of our church once you're here. The main thing that we're doing when we sing is we're obeying the commands of Scripture to sing songs to one another and to sing songs to Jesus. And the primary thing we're worried about is the content of those songs. Mm -hmm. And we are going to, like you have to say, we are going to have to deny ourselves in different ways, and some of us more than others, and that's part of what it means to be in a family. And when we're fighting for diversity in our churches, 
I think we usually sometimes too quickly go straight to music and even sometimes go straight to hiring a dude on your leadership who looks different. Both of those can be very good things that work towards diversity. I think the first front that we should fight on is teaching the people in our churches to share the gospel with all kinds of people that they come into contact with. Because we're not going to get more diversity in our churches because of, I mean, the black people that you want to hear the black music you're doing are not in the building. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. yeah. So it's like, oh, I hope they walk by and hear their favorite gospel song. That's just not, that usually is not going to happen. And on, a, on any given Sunday, who knows how many, so say you have a church of 100, you get to be there and serve those 100 people. Those 100 people are in contact with so many people throughout the week. And if we want our churches to be more diverse, the main thing we want to do is create a culture of evangelism where they're sharing the gospel with all kinds of diverse peoples, mm. especially in a community like yours. Like, get out in the community, tell people about Jesus, and invite them to come gather with us. And as the culture of our ch- church changes, we want stuff to reflect that. But the main front is share the gospel with everybody you see and let's serve them when they get Amen. it. I got to say this. I'm, I'm burning right now. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> um, so I agree it's impossible to make everybody happy, which yeah. is why this conversation has to actually be couched, not in a, in a sanctuary, but at a dinner table. That's good. Um, the, the, the door to the church is, is quickly becoming, and if you look at the New Testament, you'll find, is the dinner table. It's sharing a meal. So uh, I think the hope in creating, going back to your original question, is it better to do it badly or, or, or not at all? I think what you do as you're building a culture where you're meeting with people, loving people, breaking bread, sharing a meal, when you're getting your fingers dirty, eating some chitlins and some greens and some cornbread or, you know, uh, a chicken pesto sandwich, whatever it is that you eat. Um, I think when you're doing that, what you're doing is you're, you're bringing people together in love where they love each other so that when you get in the worship service, it could, it really doesn't matter what you're singing, but you're together and you're singing together and you love one another. So I think you begin to engender and create that culture now, even if there's no black people in your congregation, brother, I hear you. Um, But what we're doing is we're creating the culture now so that when we do have people of color come in, the first thing they won't say is this doesn't feel like home, but they'll say, man, I'm here because this brother, this sister loves me, and oh man, this music's pretty good too. Yeah, the way we try to think about it that found it helpful is every church is going to have a core musical identity. Mm -hmm. That's unavoidable. Uh, And yet, we always want to be pushing out from that. Uh, And and we say, you know, if we had people come up here and say, Jesus is Lord, in different languages, you would say, praise God for the expanse of the gospel. You wouldn't be saying, I don't understand that, I don't want to hear it. You might not understand it, but you appreciate it because it says that the gospel is bigger than you. Mm. Well, that is music. We're going to sing all kinds of styles that may not be your favorite and preference. But I think one of the greatest opportunities to worship is when we're singing the style that's not your preference. And you're reminded that the gospel's not trapped in your little cultural identity and the the, the preferences that you hold. Uh, uh, And so I think that music... Uh, even though, you know, you can't be chaotic and schizophrenic, uh, the pushing that we've done, uh, we had uh, Shaolin come do rap in our Easter service one time, and, uh, the, but the pushing we've done out in those directions has helped us with the theological formation of appreciating multi-ethnic identity. Yeah. Amen. 
And I'll just throw this last thought on this is uh, my favorite quote from the late great Chip Stam. Uh, a mature Christian is easily edified. Mm. And so if you can, mm. if you can foster, if you That's can disciple good. your congregations to a place where they're easily edified yeah. by that diversity, yeah. it's a gift. Um, all right, last, last thought, and, and maybe just a couple of you all chime in on this, but I think one of the, ways that, one of the best ways that pop culture um, can serve us um, and, and the opportunity that it provides is the ability to empathize with people who are different from us. I know for me, growing up, uh, white, middle class, in the suburbs, not a whole lot of diversity in my immediate neighborhood. Um, it completely rocked my world uh, sort of later in my life to read Toni Morrison, mm. uh, Brian Keith Jackson, um, and, and other folks, and, and to, to sort of have my eyes open to other experiences. So maybe just briefly, if, if, if each of y'all just want to sort of chime in on that and say, was there, was there a similar experience? Did you have an experience of gaining empathy um, in that way, or is there something that you would recommend, you know, for those who are struggling with these questions and struggling with the idea of privilege, the idea of institutionalized racism, is there something you would, you would point folks to? Well, so, just as a contemporary anecdote, um, I read The Hunger Games uh, a couple years ago. Yes, I read The Hunger Games. <laughs> and um, when, the, when the character Rue in the book is, is described... And then the movies come out, and she looks different, and there is just people are angry because Rue's black. Mm. Well, oh, my goodness, why did they make Rue black and this, that, and the other? But if you read the book, she actually is described as a brown-skinned little girl, mm. which lets me know that, like, the window into pop culture still is print as much as it is media. And so I remember the first time, like, I began to um, identify with a literary character was I read... Um, Native son. Mm. And I began to read this book, and, and this, the main character himself literally has zero agency, and he's essentially a puppet controlled by the culture, and then he has like one really brilliant, authentic action, and it's murder. Mm. And so kind of that, that lack of agency feeling, lack of power, but when I do feel powerful, that, that action is actually forbidden. And, and kind of that being trapped in my experience as a black man, as a young man growing up, uh, was really powerful to me. So Toni Morrison, um, Richard Wright, um, anything from the Harlem Renaissance on up to Nikki Giovanni, who's a poet laureate at, at Virginia Tech, all these um, authors would be really helpful in get, gaining a, a view into the window of the black experience. That's great. We've actually hit our window on time. I hate to cut you guys off, but grab these guys afterwards and get their... Uh get their recommendations on that. Let me pray for us. Uh, thank you all for, for being with us. Father, you, are, uh, you have made us one new man in Christ. And Lord, we long for the day when we can see that in a, in a perfect representation in your church. Um, Lord, we know the, the ways we've, we've been reflecting on all these ways in which the church is challenged. And so I pray, Father, that um, as we look at the world, as we listen to the stories that are being told, as we listen to, to songs, as we see our films, as we listen to the stories being told by our, our neighbors, by the people who we share our cities with or our workplaces with, um, Father, give us empathy. Give us empathy to, to hear and understand and simply believe the experiences that are being shared with us uh, by the folks around us. By your grace, Lord, may, may we have humble hearts to acknowledge our weaknesses, 
And may we have humble hearts that lead us to the foot of the cross mm-hmm. where truly we can be reconciled to one another yes. and to you. Um, Lord, it's in humility that, that the church is formed and it's in humility that we can acknowledge that we have one common source of life and hope. And we, uh, Lord, I pray, come Lord Jesus and, yes. and draw us together. Reveal yourself to the world through your church as we uh, are bonded together at your feet. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us on the ERLC podcast. To subscribe to this podcast and find more information about racial reconciliation, visit ERLC.com.